we look together this morning to Proverbs chapter 3, the very last section, starting in verse 27. We've seen in Proverbs thus far that God's people are called to wisdom. Wisdom has great reward. Wisdom leads us into favor with men and with God because wisdom ultimately is Christ. It's found in Christ. It's embodied in Christ. It leads us to Christ. Bearing that in mind, as we come to the end of chapter 3, we see very practical, uh, very practical instruction for what it looks like to embrace wisdom. Because when we embrace wisdom, that's something that we do inside. That's something that we embrace in our hearts. But if we're doing that, that's going to transform the way that we interact with those around us. And it's going to, to transform also the hope that is set before us. The joy for which we're eager. And that's what this text reminds us. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with a man without cause, if he has done you no harm. Do not envy the oppressor, and choose none of his ways. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved servants of God through Christ our King, God wants us to embrace wisdom in the way that we think, in the things that we study, in our hope for the future. He wants us to pursue wisdom. Thing is, wisdom isn't just about what we say or having our names written on a membership roll. Wisdom is a matter of the heart because wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Faith in the only true God. Wisdom is embodied, as I said before, in Christ. If we are to have wisdom, we must embrace Christ. We must trust the Lord Jesus with all our hearts. And if we do that, it will impact everything. It won't just lead us into church, but into a completely new set of desires. It won't just change the way we dress, but the way we address ourselves to God. Wisdom truly received will change your heart and everything else will change because of that transformation. Our text this morning points out how faith transforms our attitudes, the impulses and the desires that arise from the heart. And those transformed attitudes are revealed in the way that we perceive, think about, and treat those around us. Attitudes toward others, our attitudes toward others, reveal the hidden truth of our heart, whether we are trusting in Christ, whether we're embracing true wisdom, or whether we're rejecting it. 
And so that's the theme that we're going to consider this morning. How attitudes toward others reveal the hidden truth of the heart. And our text teaches us about those attitudes that reveal our hearts in the first six verses of our text by condemning examples of selfish injustice. That's the opposite of wisdom. It's warning us against the folly that comes natural, the foolishness that we would embrace in our sin by condemning examples of selfish injustice. And so that's our first point. Notice that we find in verses 27 through 31 six warnings. Warnings about temptations that involve behavior that is intentional. Attitudes that are are self-centered. Temptations that really stand opposed to the image of God that we're called to bear. So, in these six negative commands, Solomon is urging his son and also us to reject the foolish ways of the ungodly. First of all, he says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. The good on which this command focuses. Notice how vague it is. It could be referring to uh, some good thing. Food, shelter, clothing, something that is needed by the other person. It could refer to a good opportunity, the opportunity to work, the opportunity to learn, the opportunity for an experience. It could refer to an emotional good, praise, encouragement, hope. Whatever the specific good is, there is someone to whom it is due. The the underlying text here refers to its master. Do not withhold good from its master or its owner. In other words, that good is something that the other person deserves in some way. And it's in your hand, it's your ability to provide it. Maybe it's a resource they need and you happen to possess that resource in an abundance. Maybe they need a job and you happen to manage a company that's hiring. Whatever the good is, you're in a position to supply it. So Solomon says, don't withhold that good thing. As long as you refuse what he needs, your neighbor is lacking. So if their, if their request, if their demand is valid, don't withhold. Now why might a person do that? Why might we refuse to provide what they need, what they deserve? It might be greed. If I give it to you, it won't be there for me if I need it. Or maybe vengeance. This person really upset me. They did something that offended me, and so now's my chance to get them back. It might be simple sin. Just the opportunity to be a jerk to someone uh, sets itself before you, and you decide to take it. Whatever the motive, God's command is clear. Do not fail to do the good that you're able to do toward your neighbor. Because all that you possess was given to you by God. And he didn't give it just so you could be rich, just so you could possess, just so you could have power. He gave it so that you could serve those before you. When that Samaritan, walking along the way, came upon that Israelite who had been broken and battered by highwaymen, he picked him up, he dressed his wounds, he took him to an inn, and he paid with his own money for the the care of that battered man. Because he recognized that that money was not his, it was given him as a trust from God. 
Something that God provided specifically so He could meet this need of this individual. And so it is with everything that we possess. Jesus says when you give food to the hungry one or drink to the thirsty, when you clothe the naked or take in the stranger, when you comfort the sick or visit one who is imprisoned, when you do that good thing they need you to do, it's Christ whom you are serving. And so likewise, when you withhold that good thing, it is Christ from whom you withhold it. My friends, we are called, if we have wisdom in our hearts, if we truly serve God, we are called to give the good thing that Christ needs by providing the good that our neighbor needs. Nor shall we make our neighbor wait for the good thing that, we're need, that, that he needs, as verse 28 shows us. In this verse, we're dealing with a neighbor. Someone close to us, someone we know, and he desires something that you have. Could be something that you borrowed that you need to return, or maybe something he needs to borrow. Maybe it's the payment of a loan, or a bill, or his salary. Could be clothing, a tool, some food, whatever. The point is, you have it, he needs it. And what he needs is with you. There's no reason that you can't meet his need. So through Solomon, God commands you, do not say to your neighbor, go away and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Don't try to show off your power by making him wait for no good reason. Don't decide to save it for just a little longer in case you need it. Don't refuse him just because you can. God doesn't want his people to show off their power over others. He wants us to reveal His image, the image of the selfless one, the image of the one who delights to show mercy. That's the calling of wisdom. That is the heart of Christ. And likewise, the heart of the command in verse 29. Again, we look to our relationship with a neighbor, with a friend. This is someone who trusts you. He dwells with you for the sake of safety. And so the Lord says, do not devise evil against him. Don't seek to take advantage of someone who trusts you. Don't speak ill of him behind his back. Don't undermine his reputation, his plans, his character. Again, we were made and chosen and redeemed that we might bear the image of Christ unto his glory. So when you take someone who trusts you, he dwells with you for safety. That means he trusts you. He thinks highly of you. When you take that person who trusts you, and you use that trust in a way that betrays Him. Rather than bearing the image of God, you're bearing a false image of God. You're showing Him that, that the one you think you can trust can't be trusted after all. And since you bear the name of Christ, since you profess to belong to the Lord, you're telling Him that God can't be trusted. Such... Behavior should be far from us, should be absolutely hateful to our minds. And likewise, this fourth command we come upon, don't strive with a man without cause if he's done you no harm. Now notice this command is not limited to our neighbor, to our friend, to those who are close to us. This is talking about nearly anyone. Whoever there is who has done you no harm, whoever you encounter who has committed no sin against you, do not strive with him. Don't pick fights with him. Don't start arguments with him. Don't speak ill of him or discourage him. Don't, don't act like a jerk toward him. Because when you do, especially 
when you pick a fight with, when you strive against one who has done no harm to you, again, you present a false image of God. You're implying that God is okay with that, that God's cruel with no reason. That without purpose, God will turn a hateful eye upon men. And that's a lie. It's false. And we should never bear that image. In fact, it goes farther than that. Jesus says in Matthew 5, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now if that's how we're called to treat those who actually have done us wrong, how much less are we justified in striving against those who have not hurt us? Instead, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. But be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. That's hard for us. Some of us really like to argue. But he says, instead of satisfying that desire to get the upper hand, that desire to show your knowledge, your understanding, your smarts, Prefer instead to show the love and the mercy of, a, of your God. And that, that brings us to the two commands that we find in verse 31. In both commands, we're called to look at the oppressor, or in some translations, the violent man. See, Solomon understands that we have a dysfunctional relationship with those who are oppressive, those who are violent, those who are sinful. When they harm us, we're offended. We want justice against them. But when they're harming other people and they're not harming us, well, frankly, we're, we're somewhat impressed by them. Oppressors, men of violence, they're men of power. They see what they want and they go get it. They don't let anyone walk on them. They don't want to let anyone take advantage of them. And there's part of us that sort of admires that fact. A part of us that that wishes we were a bit more like them, that craves that kind of raw power, that ability to assert one's own rights at all times against anyone. Solomon recognizes that temptation is always before us to admire and follow after the one who is oppressive, the one who is violent, the one who is ungodly. So he says, don't envy the oppressor. Don't be jealous of them, because when you're jealous of them, you're allowing your sinful nature to take over you're saying that oppressive behavior is commendable you're exalting that which stands diametrically opposed to the character of Christ we heard in Philippians 2 what Jesus is like right he's God himself it was not robbery for him to consider himself God because he is God and yet he put all of that aside and he humbled himself to become one of us and even even to die the death that we deserved so that we could receive what we never could deserve and Jesus says to us you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles they lord it over them 
And their great ones exercise authority over them. That, that implies a, a cruelty. An exercise of power for power's sake. But he says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Because that's what he came to do. And he wants us to bear his image. So do not envy. Do not be jealous of those who exercise power for their own sake, who exalt themselves and do not choose any of his ways, says the Lord through Solomon. If the Lord condemns desiring the ways of a, an ungodly man, how much less will he be okay with us imitating him? After all, the, the oppressive man, the violent man, his ways are driven by selfishness. He comes not to serve, but to be served by all who are before him. He idolizes himself, sets himself on a pedestal. My friends, we cannot serve the selfless Savior and also follow the ways of the selfish sinner. The heart of the wise rejects that example, that selfish injustice, and thereby reveals that our hearts are set on the selfless Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, understand what these prohibitions in this text do and do not seek to accomplish. They do not teach us how to become righteous. We are far too sinful to establish our own righteousness. Were we to attempt to create our own righteousness in the sight of God, we would utterly fail every last time. We would always fall infinitely short because our best works are still stained with sin. Only Jesus, the wisdom of God in the flesh, only Jesus is able to make us righteous. And His righteousness we receive by faith as He imputes it to us. So these commands do not show us how to accomplish our own righteousness, but they do show us how to reveal the righteousness of Christ. As we repent of those behaviors that belong to the heart of a foolish man, as we reject the ways of selfishness and of injustice, as we do that, the character of Jesus Christ begins to be revealed in us. If we have true wisdom, if we have trusted in the living wisdom of God, if we have embraced the truth and the fullness of wisdom in Christ, if we have true wisdom, then our attitudes toward others will begin to reflect the attitudes of Christ. And that's what these commands urge of us. But that can only happen through wisdom. Only as we rest in Christ by faith. Today, as we mentioned in our prayer, that the nation that we're part of, many people celebrate mothers today. Why do we do that? Why do we celebrate mothers? Is it because they get paid more than most folks? Well, surely not. Is it because they, they inherently get all kinds of honor all, all the rest of the year? Well, unfortunately, no. We celebrate mothers because we depend on them. All of us. We celebrate mothers because they work hard to feed and clothe and nurture and train us. And seldom do they ask and even less seldom do they receive honor for their work. We honor them because mothers embrace this selfless task of raising us. 
And that's the kind of selflessness this text sets before us. The selflessness that gives freely without asking for anything in return. The selflessness that provides constantly and quickly according to the needs of those whom God sets before us. The selflessness that covers offense in love time and time and time again. It's that selflessness to which this text calls us because that is the very character of Christ. And when we take up these commands, when we make that selflessness our own, it's Christ whom we are honoring, Christ whom we are reflecting. That's why we must condemn selfish injustice in ourselves, that we might bear the image of Christ. And if we do resolve thus to honor Christ, to show that He is our comfort and our hope, That wisdom will reveal itself not only in the ways that we treat our neighbor, but also in the hope that we set before our neighbor. And that's our second point. We're to cultivate the expectation of sovereign justice. At the start of this section, Solomon contrasts God's just response to two different kinds of people. First, he speaks of the person who is perverse. The the word that underlies this Hebrew word is, It really means crooked, that which has gone astray. Because the perverse person is the person who has gone astray from God and from His law. He knows in his his heart, in his conscience, what God would have him do, and he refuses to do it. He sees the things that God forbids, and that's what he embraces. He's perverse in that he does exactly the opposite of what God commands. Such a person, says Solomon, is an abomination to the Lord. The word abomination is often used in the the letters of Moses to describe the things and the behavior that directly attack God's holiness. So in Deuteronomy 7, God calls Israel to hate the images of false gods because they're an abomination to Him. In Deuteronomy 13, He calls that an abomination or calls that man an abomination who would lead others to serve false gods. And in Leviticus 18... The behavior of those who serve false gods is condemned as an abomination. So what God calls an abomination, it's that which robs him of his his glory, of his honor. And it cuts those who embrace it off from God. So God's saying those who embrace perversity, those who go astray from me and from my ways... They will be rejected by me. They're an abomination in my sight and so I will cast them off. By embracing perversity, people embrace isolation from God. They embrace His curse. They get cast off from Him. But not so those who are upright. This word is the precise opposite. It's the semantic opposite of the word underlying perversity. It speaks of those who are straight. They stay on the straight and narrow. They follow that which is upright and good, which is the Word of God. Because they eagerly embrace God and His wisdom, therefore, says the Lord, they are given His secret counsel. That is a fascinating word. Because it can refer either to the intimate counsel between two who are close, who trust one another, 
or to that which they speak to one another. In other words, the Lord is saying those who are upright, those who have chosen the ways of wisdom, those who embrace Christ, they will be restored to an intimacy with God by which He reveals to them His perfect will. And He communes with them and He cultivates a relationship with them that is absolutely intimate. How dramatic a difference between those two. Those who are perverse, those who turn aside from the wisdom of God, God rejects them as an abomination. But those who are upright, those who follow after the ways of wisdom, God draws them near and gives them an intimate relationship with Himself. And then we find another distinction that's, that's more common but just as radical. The distinction between curse and blessing. Israel heard that curse often in the, the books of Moses. Those who follow God's commands, demonstrating their faith by their obedience, revealing their love for God by following after Him. To them, in passages like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God promises His comprehensive blessing. He promises that He will give rain in season and crops with abundance. He will give victory over their enemies and peace among their neighbors. He will give strength for the body and encouragement for the soul. Above all else, He says, I will walk among you and be your God. And you shall be my people. So the blessing of God is the comprehensive expression of His favor on all of life for all time. But on the other hand, for those who reject Him, for those who demonstrate that they don't have faith in God, and they show it by their disobedience, by their walking in rebellion, well, to them He says, I will appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of the heart. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, etc., etc., etc. He says you will be cursed in your home and in your city. You will be cursed in the city and in the country. You will be cursed now and in eternity. In every way, God will set Himself against those who reject Him. Well, surely it behooves us to know which we can expect, whether the blessing or the curse. And he tells us in verse 33, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just, the wicked, those who transgress God's laws, those who reject his wisdom. Upon them stands God's curse, both now and unto eternity. But his blessing is to those who are just. Those who live in such a way that it shows their love for God and their delight in His ways. They set His word foremost in their life as that which is true. And they follow after His wisdom because they know that it delights God. If you strive for a life of justice by, not by accomplishing your own, your own righteousness, but by clinging to the the righteousness of Christ, the wisdom of God, then God's blessing both now and unto eternity is yours. Because our God is characterized by His justice and He loves those who embrace justice. Look at verse 34. Look at the justice that is inherent there. Surely He scorns the scornful. The scornful person is the one who's always looking down upon others. 
He finds something wrong with nearly everything that comes before him. He laments that he's surrounded by folks that are foolish or lazy or uncommitted. He alone gets it right every time. And we don't find the the scornful only out there among the unbelievers. No, we find them here in, in the midst of the church. Those who are scornful among believers. They're the ones that can find something wrong in just about anything anyone does. If they're in the pulpit, they can find something abysmally wrong with every other church. For the scornful one in church, nothing is ever quite good enough. The organ is always too loud or too soft, too fast or too slow. The preacher, he he spends way too much time on application and not nearly enough on the gospel. Or he doesn't spend nearly enough time on application. The people aren't welcoming enough or they spend way too much time trying to be welcoming. The scornful person is never satisfied. He always knows far better because he is driven by pride. But God says He will scorn the scornful one. God will return upon His head the scorn that He heaped upon everyone else. And when God scorns Him, He will be cast out into the darkness along with His scorn. Far better is the end of those who embrace humility. God delights in those who are humble because they follow the example of Christ who humbled Himself to save us. And so God gives to the humble what they would never dare take for themselves. He gives them grace that they might be saved from their sins. He gives them righteousness that they could never earn. He gives them an inheritance that is eternal and utterly perfect and that is crowned by a relationship with Him. God grants wisdom to those who humble Himself by leading them to know deeply and love eternally the living wisdom that is Christ. And then finally Solomon turns our eyes to the end of all things. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. The wise, remember what that means. These are the men and women who love Christ because He's the living embodiment of the wisdom of God. They have embraced God's truth as the truth and therefore they have embraced Jesus who fulfills God's truth as their Savior, their Lord, and their King. The wise, for them their end is glory. They will enter the fullness of the presence of our God. Cast off will be all their sins and their faults completely and they will embrace the perfection that God has prepared for them. How glorious that is. Not so the fool. Having rejected the wisdom of God, the fool seeks to exalt himself to the throne. But from that self-exaltation, he will be cast down. And he will be humbled eternally by being cast out from the presence and the blessing of our God. My friends, you do not want to experience the end of the fool. And today is the day that God has called you to choose, to make your resolution. Will you embrace deep in your heart the way of the fool? That's the easy way. No question about that. All you got to do is put yourself first. Manipulate folks when the opportunity is there so you can come out on top. Enjoy life. Strive to get the most toys, the most goodies, the most experiences. 
be popular, no matter what the cost. And you'll, you'll enjoy yourself for a while, but your end will be dishonor, sovereign scorn, a curse that never departs. Choose instead the path of wisdom. The way of wisdom is the way of Christ. Trusting Jesus as your salvation and your life. Imitating Jesus as your pattern for gratitude. The way of wisdom will lead you to devote yourself to destroying the selfishness that so easily arises within your heart. To repenting daily of the injustice that you're so tempted to embrace. But if you take up that life of seeking after selflessness, of casting off injustice, of pursuing the way of Christ's wisdom, if you devote yourself to that, your end will be glory. Your future will be intimate communion with God. And the joy that shall be yours is joy that this world can't even fathom. But you will begin to show it even now in the attitudes that you show those around you. The attitudes that we bear toward others reveal the hidden truth of the heart. May God cause our hearts to reveal our faith, our hope, and our love for Jesus and Him alone. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, You are so amazingly gracious to us. We stand in awe of your goodness and of the wisdom that you have revealed in Christ. Teach us to take up that wisdom, to, to humble ourselves before you and to delight in that which delights you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would hold us firmly in Christ and in all that characterizes him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.